We hope this explanation of God's Word enriches your life. To help you understand the audience for this talk, we suggest you read the context material on the About Us page. Please read also our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material from philipjensen.com. The following sermon was given at St. Matthias Family Church, where Philip Jensen was senior minister. The other night I was asked about a verse in Ezekiel 14.9, and then last night I was asked of another verse but then after 50 minutes of more questions, I got lost and forgotten. I didn't write down what the other verse was. So whoever's asked it can come and see me later and I'll look it up with them and deal with it uh, tomorrow in detail if you want to. Although in my memory, it was the same kind of problem that we have in Ezekiel 14 verse 9. And that is the problem of God in relationship to the use of evil. So we are told in James chapter 1 that God does not tempt to sin and he, he himself cannot be tempted. And yet in Ezekiel 14 verse uh, 9 we're told, and if the prophet is enticed to utter a prophecy, I the Lord have enticed that prophet and I will stretch out my hand against him and destroy him from among my people of Israel. That is the prophet will be enticed into a false prophecy and he'll be enticed into the false prophecy by the Lord himself. So if the Lord does not tempt in the sense of enticing to sin anybody, how come the Lord entices the prophet into this seeming sin that we have here into false prophecy? Now there are other similar problems. In uh, 1 Kings 22 there is a quite strange story. Uh, for most of us strange means we don't understand. It's not itself strange of course. Uh, 1 Kings 22 about God sending a lying spirit into the mouths of the prophets and you would think lies are of the devil what's this business with lying spirits and of course more famous than those references which really require the ingenuity of the questioner to find more famous is uh, Job in chapters 1 and so on where God and Satan seem to discuss the, the outcome of of Job and the the devil using his powers over Job to tempt him and test him as he would like at the behest of God. Now as I say I can't remember the verse that came last night but it's the same kind of question. Can I ref in answer of them can I start off by saying that we are coming under the misapprehension of dualism. It is very common in our community and it is commonly expressed by us and like most errors it's half true. Dualism is the belief that there are two gods, a good god and a bad god, who are at war with each other and we are the pawns in the middle of the massive chess game being played between these two equal powers and forces or personalities. And so there is God and there is Satan and they are at war with each other and everything that happens to us that is good is God and everything that happens to us that is bad is Satan and so that is the struggle that we are in. And as I say, there is a truth in that. That is, there is a personal evil force a person, personally is, called Satan, who is at work 
in opposition to God. That is true. However, it is not true that he is God or equal to God or even comes within a bull's roar of being equal with God. He is a creature of God, created by God for God's own purposes in God's own time and way and to bring glory to God and he is God's servant whom God uses as he wishes so that even though he is working against God God is able to use this opposition force to bring about his good purposes. I saw a uh, judo girl uh, on the television throwing a Belgian girl onto her back and therefore winning the gold medal at the Olympics. It was a kind of funny twist right at the end. Judo's hard to watch if you've never done it, like I have never done it and have absolutely no intention of doing either. It was a funny twist at the end because the Belgian girl, right to the very second that her shoulders hit the canvas and she was kind of held looked like she was beating the, the, the Japanese girl. She actually was the one who put forward the offence. She was the one who was, had the Japanese girl bent over backwards, but it was that the Japanese girl was able to use the force of opposition to lever the Belgian girl in the direction she was going so that she actually pinned her over on her back. God is able to use the force of the evil one to bring about his good purposes. For he is indeed the master of all, the Lord of all, and the one and only God. And Satan likes to think of himself as God, likes to put around the message that he is a God, can be called the God of this world because so many people follow him, but is no God at all, and indeed is a false and phony God, who is no match for the God of all the earth in any shape, form or fashion. In fact, God uses him to bring about his purposes. Come with me to Isaiah 45, Isaiah 45, and take note, for example, of verses 7 and 8. I, this is God the Lord, the only one, there is no other, verse 6, I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. See, God doesn't just bring prosperity. He also brings disaster. He doesn't just create light. He also creates darkness. He is not just the Lord of heaven. He's also the Lord of hell. When we are sick, it is God who has given us the sickness. When we get better... It is God who gives us the health. We mustn't have this dualism in our minds that all kinds of things that we don't like come from the devil and all things that we do like come from God. It is a distortion of what the Bible says. So then come to a passage we looked at briefly last night and in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and there you can see an example of it being put together. Paul speaks in verses 1 to 6 of the incredible visions that he has had and says in verse 7, 
to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Who gave it to him? Well, the normal passive in uh, biblical language is a way of saying God gave it to me. And clearly when you read the chapter, the reason it was given to him was for his good. It was God who gave it to him for his good. But what did God give him? He gave him a message of Satan. Satan is just one of God's servants bringing about his good purposes. What he has given Paul is a very unpleasant thorn in his flesh. But it is God who gave it to him. That is, God is at work in all the world, sovereignly ruling over everything, including evil and all the forces of evil and even the very person of evil himself, Satan. God uses him to bring about his purposes. Uh, that, of course, is what, in one sense, the cross is about. If you can remember or if you care to look up Acts chapter 2, no, chapter Yes, chapter 2, that's right, Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Speaking of Jesus, the man of God, through whom God did wonderful signs and the rest, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. You see, God used evil men to do an evil thing in order to bring about his good purposes. So God's plans include and involve, use and utilise powers and forces of evil to bring about his good purposes. Now that is not dualism, that is very different to dualism. I mean you might call it a semi-dualism in the sense that there are forces of evil working against God so it's a semi-dualism, but it's not two equal forces working. It is the God of all the universe and a small force working against him. In fact, semi might be not quite... What's, what's a word for a quarter force or an eighth force or a millimetre force? Right? It is a tiny force working against him, but God uses that tiny force that works against him to bring about his good purposes, including sending a lying spirit, including in Ezekiel 14... Deceiving the prophets. Um, enticing is how the NIV translates it, but I take it it translates it that way out of embarrassment for what the AV, the RV, the RSV, the ASV, and in fact I've only got a few translations up here at the moment, but everyone I checked did not use the word entice. They all used the word deceived in Ezekiel 14.9. That's embarrassing to people. I think, though, we're better sticking with that word than enticing, which I think opens up a can of worms as to what God is doing inside the prophet. What he's doing is he is deceiving the prophets so that they will not speak the truth. That is, he is allowing Satan free range over those prophets just as he did over uh, Job. The, 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 the evil one was doing the work of God when the evil one tested Job and tempted him as he did. But you'll remember the promise of God in 1 Corinthians 10.13 that you will never be tested beyond your ability to endure. 
But with the testing, we'll always have a way of escape. It will never be in a position where you can do no other than sin. Judas did not have to betray Jesus, though before the foundation of the world it was a certain and sure thing that he would. But he didn't have to. He could have resisted the temptation. He just didn't resist the temptation, as could be predicted. Now, I've taken a little while on this subject because it is a complex subject. I've taken it also a little while because I think they're important subject for us to wrestle with. If we're going to understand and believe in the sovereignty of God that it's teaching, we've got to look at the very hard cases as well. Because once we can grasp hold of it, even down to its hard cases, we will grasp hold of it more clearly. Uh, This is not easy stuff, but if we're going to look at prayer, we're going to look at God. If you look at God, then you're going to wind up, well, what can God do in this sinful fallen world? And the answer is everything and anything he can do. So I want to turn now to how do we pray, but I feel like we need to stop and break and have a sing-song. We've been going so long already on bookstalls and questions and the rest. But let's talk. How do we pray? The series this week has really been to motivate and encourage and to educate you in prayer life. But if at the end of the day we don't pray, the series is a complete failure, isn't it? To gain information and gather up information about prayer but not to pray is a most futile, silly activity. The aim is to get us to pray. And most people, I believe, when they come to a series on prayer, expect the first thing to be spoken of will be how to pray. I hope by the end of this evening's uh, address you will start to work out that your expectations were wrong, that the how-to of prayer is the least important thing that it really is a footnote on the bottom of page 375. But let's start with some how-tos and deal with the subject of words first because the first obvious how to pray is by words. And while it is an obvious way of praying is by words, it has been seriously challenged of recent years. It has been challenged that prayer is talking to God. There are three challenges in particular. Firstly, Some people say prayer is not talking to God, prayer is listening to God. That what I must do as I pray is to be open myself up to hear what God has to say to me rather than me to babble on telling God what I want to tell him. I do not believe that is true. I don't think that's what the Bible teaches about prayer. I think the Bible teaches that we listen to God in his word, the scriptures. But in prayer, we talk to God. That is, we communicate and hold conversation with God. We talk in prayer, he talks through his word in the scriptures. That is how we communicate. And I do not think that we communicate with God by us listening to him in prayer. Prayer is about talking. Secondly, the second challenge to it comes from the popular idea of meditation. Now the word meditation occurs in the Bible. But the word meditation occurs in modern English thanks to Eastern religions and their revivals in our society in a completely different sense. That is, meditation today is a new age word. It's about mystic activity. It's transcendental is the nature of meditation. It is the great settling down, place your hands on the upright position on your knees and concentrate on a big spot in the middle of nothingness and nowhere and gradually come to undiscover the great OM that is out there. 
that you get absorbed, trance-like, into the other reality of supernatural reality. You can find it in Christian forms, though. So there was a very popular book a few years ago, which uh, is not on our bookstall, by Richard Foster called The Celebration of Discipline. Hands up those who have seen or read The Celebration of Discipline. Good, it's only the oldies amongst us, I'm glad. Uh, if you don't mind being called the whole... You're, you're, yeah, um, you don't remember 43 either. Um, it's only the oldies amongst us remember it. I'm glad it's passed out of fashion, but it was the raging fashion just a few years ago, and it's still, you see, it's recycled, in which you're calling Christians into that same meditative practices that you find in Buddhism and you find in Hinduism and you find in medieval Catholic mysticism as well. The whole... But that is not what the Bible means by the word meditate. The Bible, the modern translations, the ancient translations into English use the word meditate to think. That's what the old meaning of the word is. It's not thoughtlessness, it's not irrationality, it is just normal cognitive thinking. So you see it all the way through the Psalm 119. Look up Psalm 119, wonderful, wonderful psalm. Psalm 119 is famous for lots of reasons. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. It's an alphabet psalm. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet and each eight verses starts with the next letter of the alphabet, which is why it's 176 verses long. Every verse in Psalm 119 refers to the word of God somewhere. And it is the psalm that I found fewer people have been able to learn off by heart than any other psalm. Are we all up to it now? It's only two psalms away from the shortest chapter of the Bible. I'm running out of things to give you time to find Psalm 119. It's in the middle of your Bible and I'll just show you some of the ways it's used to meditate and notice in the meditation it's constantly on the word of God, on the ideas of God, on the precepts of God. Pick it up verse 15, Psalm 119 verse 15. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. Hebrew poetry, by the way, keeps on giving you parallelisms. The first half is saying the same thing as the second half, just with a change of words. And it's very helpful in terms of fixing meaning that you have this parallelism between the first half and the second half. There are all kinds of different forms of parallelism, but synonymous parallelism is the one that you have here. I meditate on your precepts, consider your ways. It's the same thing, it's the same idea, but it's a mental idea of thinking, of considering. Or of, of verse 23... Though rulers sit together and slander me, your servant will meditate on your decrees. That's not direct parallelism of synonymous type, is it? But there is again, you're meditating, you're thinking about his decrees. Verse 27, let me understand the teaching of your precepts, then I will meditate on your wonders. Or verse 48, I lift up my hands to your commands, which I love, and I meditate on your decrees. Or 78, may the arrogant be put to shame for wronging me without cause, but I will meditate on your precepts. Or again, 97, verse 97, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. That is, he's not just meditating. He is meditating on the law of the Lord. That is, he's thinking about the law of the Lord. He's considering, he's weighing it up, he's, he's understanding, he's growing throughout the Psalms, throughout the book. Meditating is used, and you see it in context after context to mean think. It's just a nicer word than think. It's got three syllables. That's how it kind of rattles along a little bit better, but that's all it means. The third challenge cut to the idea that prayer is about words is the 
way in which the Bible speaks about praying in the Spirit. You'll find the phrase in the Spirit not related to prayer in the book of Revelation about three or four times it occurs and in those occasions it talks about being in the age to come. But it is used in Ephesians 6.18 where we are told to pray in the Spirit. I will explain that a little later on in this talk when I talk about Ephesians 2.18 because Ephesians 2.18 explains what Ephesians 6.18 is about praying in the Spirit as I hope you'll see. Ask me question time if you don't. Romans 8, 26, 27 also talks about the Spirit helping us in our prayers when we do not know what to pray and helping us with groans that are too hard for us to understand. That passage I will also look at later. The third one is about 1 Corinthians 14 which talks about praying in tongues and it says, well, I pray with my spirit but not with my mind but the tongues actually are words. They may be words you don't understand, but they are words, and that's why he would prefer to have interpretation. That's why he'd prefer to have praying in words I do understand. So praying in the Spirit is not put in contrast to praying in words. At this point, it's got to do with that my spirit is praying, but my mind is not praying because I don't understand the words that I'm using in my prayer. So it's still praying in words. It's just praying in words you don't understand and he's putting it down as a practice too. That is, prayer in the Bible is speaking to God. Now, we might not think much of that, but remember, in the ancient world, God is, God is put in contrast to idols. And one of the ways the Bible puts God in contrast to idols is that God, unlike the idols, hears, he lives, he moves, and he speaks. The idols don't speak. The idols don't hear. They don't move, they don't live. But God does all those things. And the speaking and hearing of God is one of the great claims and boasts about the God of Israel. Words are very important in the scriptures. Psalm 33 verse 6, By the word of God the heavens and the earth were created. God created by speaking and it happened. Indeed in John 1 we're told in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God and verse 14, and the Word became flesh. You, you can't be a Christian and be negative about words because the very concept of Word is one of the ways in which you can talk of God himself. He was the Word in the very beginning. The Word was God. Indeed, in Ephesians 6.17, Ephesians 6.17, we find out that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. So Father, the Creator, created the world by the Word. The Son himself is the Word of God and the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. It is our modern world coming again out of the Enlightenment and the conquest of atheism over the intellectual West that has lost all confidence in words. They have gone down an, a, a form of uh, epistemology of the study of knowledge which has left them in complete confusion about the nature and power and importance of words and have created this whole deconstructionist, postmodernist kind of way of words not meaning what words mean and only meaning what you want them to mean. It's all in the mind of the hearer and it's all a political game we're playing. The concept of meaning is not being conveyed and part of the stupidity of it all is that they write books to try and persuade you to this point of view 
which actually means they do believe the words can convey meanings, otherwise why do you write a book about the subject? But yet that is the way the world has gone, by removing one of the fundamentals of God, that is he speaks. Because he speaks, words matter. Because words matter, my words to God matter. And speaking to God is not something to disparage, it is a rare privilege that is ours. And that's what prayer is about. Remember when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray? He does it twice, but it's the same thing. It's in Matthew 6 and it's in Luke 11. The disciples ask him in Luke 11 and he tells them anyway in Matthew 6. They ask him how to pray and what does he say? How you pray is you go into a quiet room, you shut the door, you sit in the corner, you make sure that the telephone is turned off, you make sure that the music is turned down, that there's a quiet ambience, possibly put a kind of Segovia classical guitar or John Williams just kind of strumming the guitar in the background kind of music. You kind of, or, or, or you put on that kind of whale beaching kind of music kind of stuff, right? And there in this ambience of a warmth, make sure the heater is on but not too hot, there in the ambience you let your mind, no. How do you pray? Jesus says, say, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom. He teaches them what to pray. And how you pray is by talking to God. That's what Jesus teaches. How you pray is talking. And how you pray is what you pray. Well then, what about time? What about place? What about posture? Are these things important, unimportant or whatever? I've got three errors under this. Number one, the error of legalistic inflexibility. Because we want to discipline our lives, organise our lives, make sure that prayer plays a prominent part in our life, we make up rules and regulations for ourselves about prayer. No prayer, no breakfast. And what we wind up with becomes legalism. It becomes a method of manipulating God and ritual which really turns out not to be prayer at the end of the day. Legalism is never a way in which to pray to God. So not wanting to be legalistic, we go to the second error called licentious inactivity. We've had to get rid of uh, Al tonight because I was moving some big words in here and uh, his capacity for spelling a licentious was fairly limited. But we have Clarissa to the rescue. Licentious inactivity. That's how I spell it too. That's good. That's right. <laughs> you copied it from me. Yeah. Licentious inactivity. Licence means permission to do whatever you like and when you have permission to do anything you like, what will you do? Absolutely nothing. And so I believe in praying in a horizontal posture between the sheets, preferably on a warm electric blanket. You know that kind of prayer time? The kind of prayer time that turns out not to be prayer at all is that kind of freedom. Now you are free to pray to God that way. You're not capable of doing it for any length of time, but you are free to do it if you wish to do it. We're not under law. In fact, you're not under anything but some blankets. The third way, or the third error, is to think that time, place and posture actually matter. To think that God is concerned where you pray and how you pray and the place and the kind of posture that you... If you're not kneeling, then it's not real prayer. If you're just sitting, well, that's not genuine prayer. Or you have to stand, or you have to stand with your hands up, or you have to lie down flat on the face, or on your back, or in any posture that's necessary. 
uh, in most religions of the world have rules and regulations about the posture you must have, close your eyes and hold your hands together, the kind of posture that is essential or necessary for you to be praying. I don't mean to be rude to our hosts here who have been actually very kind and, uh, and, uh, and provided for us magnificently during the course of these last two or three weeks we've been working with them, but, you know, the idea that you've got to pray in a mountain right at the top of the hill in a special building set aside for the task of prayer actually says all the wrong things because you don't have to be up to the mountain. You don't have to be on the mountaintop. God is not deaf. He doesn't need to have you right up there close to him where you don't have to bellow so loud or anything like that. And there are no special places or postures or times. You see, there was once. It was called the temple in Jerusalem. And Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And what was he talking about? He was talking about his very self. That his, his body that was crucified was raised up on the third day because that is our temple. The place where we meet God is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where we meet God. That is the only place you can meet God. And when we get to heaven in Revelation we find you look around the city of God and the one thing that John said was not there that he was expecting to be there because after all he'd seen Jerusalem there was the city of God in heaven the real Jerusalem and lo and behold there was no temple you don't need a temple in heaven because you're permanently in the presence of God when you are in Christ Jesus you don't need a holy building because you're permanently in the presence of God because you are in Christ Jesus for that is where you meet God not in a building but in Christ Jesus and for Christians to now rebuild buildings so that you can meet God has made a, a fundamental error in what they're doing because they've forgotten that we don't need a building now except as a rain shelter. That's a fairly important reason for having a building. Well, is there any posture that God wants? Yes, there is an essential posture. The Bible describes many postures in praying people fall down flat on their face and pray and others kneel down and others stand and pray. There's many postures described but there are two postures commanded. The first one turns out to be a bit of a fizz. The second one is absolutely essential. But let me give you the first one first, 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. We need to all look it up and I'm sorry to tell you that I have another translation problem for you. One Timothy two verse eight. Paul writes, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. Now, previously in this chapter we've used the word men in a way that means people. For example, back in verse three and four, this is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all men to be saved. There it's not men males, there it is men people because there is one God and one mediator between God and, it should be again, people. But the next one, the man, is not the human, it's actually the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. And it's a problem of this translation, which is a translation made before the days of political correctness, and which now is a little confusing and needs an update in that area. What about verse 8? Now verse 8 is not humans, verse 8 is men, male, husbands. Of that, you know, it's of the, of the male gender persuasion, that group. 
I want them to pray. How do I know that? Well, because of the Greek word that's used, anair, which andros, from which we get Andrew, the manly kind. Uh, It's from that word, and also because you'll see he then goes on in verse 9 to talk about what he wants for women. So verse 8, this is what I want men to do. Verse 9, this is what I want women to do. So it's men-male variety. So the women can have a little snooze here if they wish to. Fellows need to wake up. If you're sitting near one ladies, you might just do a quick jab. Here is where it's needed for them. Our work, men, is prayer. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. Men, as opposed to women, have a particular responsibility to pray. Now, why? Well, he could be saying this because he notices that men aren't very good at doing it. And so he's saying, well, look, I really want the men to be doing it because I I don't need to tell the women they're good at doing it. I need to tell the men to do it. I say that because that's what I've noticed as a pastor in churches all over the, wherever I've been in the English-speaking world, that when you have a mixed group sitting down to pray, the women are the ones who jump in and start and pray most. Now, it could be because women are more articulate and we've got a greater ability with language and a greater ability of speech than men have generally uh, because they have a greater capacity for language and a greater confidence in it. It could be that... Uh, Women find dependence a more natural thing because of the culture in which we've been raised or they've been indoctrinated or it could be for lots of reasons, I don't know, but it may be all he's trying to do is correct the balance that women will pray anyway, so I really want to tell the men to pray. Or it could be that he's addressing the men because men are fighters and fighting is the opposite for prayer. I say that because of James chapter 4, which you may remember from the night ago, James chapter 4, what causes quarrels, what causes fighting amongst you, you want, you take, but you do not pray. When you do pray, you ask the wrong way to spend on your passions. And so prayer is the opposite of fighting, and I also say that because the second half of verse 8 here, that you are to pray without anger, without disputing. That is, men may not turn to God in prayer, men may try and solve the problem themselves, especially with their hands and especially using their hands against each other. And so that that is what he is talking about here. You also see that in 1 Peter 2 verse 7 where he's talking about husbands and wives and again in uh, not living considerately with your wife will damage your prayer life. And again it's interesting that it's the husband who has the prayer life to be damaged, that the men have some special responsibility in prayer. I don't think that our community thinks praying is a particularly masculine activity. But I think we men need to face up that as Christian men there is nothing more masculine than being the leaders in prayer. That that is a man's job to do and we need to take responsibility in it. I say it also in the light of uh, the many Christian women who have complained to me as a pastor about the fact that their husbands will not take spiritual responsibility in their home. They'd all like being head of the house uh, by which they interpret can boss the woman around but they don't take head of the house by which the Bible means willing to take spiritual leadership and responsibility of laying down their life for their wife, in particular leading her in the things of God, in particular leading in prayer. And so they won't organise the prayer life of the family. And so fellows, in particular, Christian women want you to take leadership in this area. And yet this is the area in which I keep having complaints that the men won't do it. However, I do have a problem here with the translation because the translation really is I wish men to pray 
in every place, holding up holy hands without anger or disputing. Now that doesn't sound any different and in one sense in meaning it is no different but in emphasis it is completely different. The key word in a sentence is the verb, the doing word or the being word as some lesser creature said recently. The verb is the key word. What the NIV has done is taken the verb and turned it into a noun and then found a participle, an ing word, and turned it into the verb. So the Greek actually says, I want men to pray. What are we? I want men to pray in every place, holding up holy hands. So what the NIV has said is, I want men to hold up holy hands, praying or in prayer. They've turned the verb pray into the noun prayer. And they've turned the participle holding into the principal verb hold. So it looks like verse 8 is about a command to hold up your hands when you're praying. But in actual fact the command is to pray. And it's telling you how to go about praying, that is holding up holy hands. Lifting or holding, lifting is the word it's used here. See the difference? It's a very important emphasis difference because the important thing is not lifting your hands, the important thing is praying. Paul wouldn't have made that mistake and I'm sorry the NIV translators have. May they get this tape and fix it. But when you say lifting holy hands, there's three words, right, phrase, lifting holy hands. I want you to think very quickly and then in a moment when I say go, I want you to call out which is the most important of those three words, lifting holy hands. Go. Of course it is. The thing's not about lifting hands, the thing's about the kind of hands to be lifting up. That is holy ones. And what are holy ones? The ones without anger and disputing. So it's not really a verse which is telling you that the way to pray is by holding up hands. What it's saying is, men, stop using your hands as fists. You lift your hand up, but don't lift it up in violence and anger. Lift it up in holiness and righteousness because you be people of prayer rather than quarrel. It's a different thing altogether. And so to take this as the basis for a posture, I think it's a fish. You see, so the verse actually is not about a command for posture at all. Well, is there any essential posture? Yes, there is an essential posture for prayer. And I'll give it to you in a series of verses. Come with me to Psalm 51, verse 17. Psalm 51, verse 17. Verse 15, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I bring it. You take no pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. Come with me to Psalm 34, verse 18. 34, 18. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. 
Come with me to Isaiah 57. 57. Isaiah 57. Go to the right, about three or four books. If you've hit Jeremiah like I have, you've gone too far. Isaiah 57. Verse 15. For this is what the Holy and Lofty One says, He who lives forever, whose name is Holy, I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. So he lives in, it's a lovely verse, isn't it? He lives in the high and holy place, and he lives in the heart of the lowly people. 66, Isaiah 66, verse 2b. This is the one that I esteem, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, the great opening of the Sermon on the Mount when there's a series of blessings pronounced by Jesus on different people. Verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they'll inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they'll be filled. Blessed are the merciful, they'll be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What is the essential posture for prayer? It's the humble heart. It's the contrite conscience. It's the broken spirit. He doesn't want your bodies to be bent down. He wants your soul to be bent down. He doesn't want your head to hang down. He wants your heart to be hanged down. He wants you to come in the reality that these bodily postures may symbolise but can also be a complete lie and a distortion, can't they? The essential, po- the essential posture is the reality of a spiritual brokenness. That is the essential posture of prayer. But how do we pray? Well, I finished point one. And this is hardly a time to have a break, but seeing we had all that question time and book review, I reckon you need it now, don't you? We might have... How do we pray? Let me recap the last three nights because the answer has already been given to you over the last three nights but I'm not sure that people see it so we'll spell it out again because it takes a while to grasp hold of it. How do we pray? Well the answer is because God who he is, what he has done and our relationship with him Because God allows us to pray, because God in his actions and relationship with us demand that we do pray, because God in his generosity commands us to pray and because God promises to listen to our prayers, because God is the able creator, because he is able to hear and able to respond and able to act, controlling the whole earth and all the creation, because 
he is able to give us what we ask for and to deny us what we do not ask for. And because he is the willing father, because he is more willing to help than we are to ask, because he is not evil but good and because he gives good gifts to his children and especially because he gives his Holy Spirit to those who ask him, and because he is the holy and righteous judge, because he is not affected by sin but not willing to ignore our sins punishes the guilty, because of God we can, we must, we ought to pray God's way. That is the only way in which we can pray. How can I pray? God's way. That's the only way. There is no other way but God's way. But because of sin, we can't pray. And because of sin, we don't pray. Here's the nub of the problem of prayer and here is the nub of the pleasure of prayer. For it is a problem and it is a pleasure. Because of sin we can't pray, because of sin we don't pray. That is, God's holy righteousness and our sinfulness makes approaching him something we can't do and something we don't do. It means that approaching him because of our sinfulness is an undesirable thing to do. In our sinful hearts we do not want to come into the presence of the living, holy, righteous judge of all the world. Because of our sin we are distorted in our view of God. We are distorted in our view of life. We have sinful minds that do not understand what prayer is and so I went through a long list of ways in which we think we're praying but in actual fact not praying back on Tuesday night. Because of our sin and because of God's holy righteousness, it is impossible for God to listen to us. So although we're praying, it is into a vacuum because he cannot listen to sinful people. He is too holy to look upon evil. He will not listen to sinful people. But because of God's Son... Because Christ Jesus has died and paid the penalty for us, because he has turned aside God's anger and declared us to be right with God because the punishment has been paid, he has opened up for us access to God. That is, because of sin we can't pray. If we remain committed to sin... If we continue to reject the Lord Jesus Christ and his penalty payment for us, we cannot reach the Father. Jesus said in John 14:6, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father but by me. If I choose to continue to cherish sin in my heart, the Lord will not listen to my prayers, Psalm 66:18. If I continue to reject the Lord Jesus Christ as the payment for sins, I have no grounds upon which I can enter into the throne room of God. For if I, a sinful person, comes into the presence of God, his righteous anger will strike out and destroy me at an instant. 
He has put a huge buffer zone between himself and us because that is the only way in which we can continue to live. But if I care to cross that buffer zone without the penalty for sin being paid, then I will pay the penalty for sin. I won't be listened to. Only in Christ Jesus can we come to the holy righteous judge. Therefore, only Christians, or those becoming Christians, those coming in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, can pray. That's a fairly harsh statement, friends, that I'm making here, isn't it? But all other prayer is not prayer, for it's not God's way. And the whole basis upon which I can pray is because of God. So how do I pray? It's got to be God's way. And if I try any way other than the way of Jesus, it's not God's way. And I can't pray. But we Christians still don't pray because of sin. As non-Christians we can't pray, as Christians we don't pray. It's a slight overstatement those and I'll qualify them back if I'm pressed to. But it's a basic idea that you need to grasp. As Christians we can't pray and as non-Christians we don't pray what did I say? As Christians, we don't pray. I got my words wrong. But that just shows the foolishness of Christians, doesn't it? Here is something that is open to us. Here is the privilege of being able to come into the throne room of God that nobody else can do. Here is the privilege that has been bought for us at the price of God's dear one and only Son. And we don't enter in. We do not come because of our continued sinfulness, our continued misunderstandings of God, our continued distortions of the truth about his willingness, about his ability, about our relationship with him, our continued perversions and twistings of what prayer would be, our attempts to manipulate him, our attempts to... We have got the full access of God through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ but we don't pray. However, if you say, well, I am a Christian, and ask me to teach you to pray, then I will tell you how to pray. You pray by saying, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. That is how you pray. By coming in the gospel to God. You see, how do we pray? How can we pray? How do we pray? The answer is because of the gospel. For the gospel moves us from can't pray to can pray, even though we don't pray, and then it will move us from don't pray to do pray if we just understand the gospel enough. That is, in the gospel we are born again. We are adopted by God so that he becomes our father. The Bible doesn't see God as the father of creation. 
He is the maker of creation. He didn't generate creation. Creation is not his offspring. We are his offspring. Not all humans are his offspring. The Bible rarely, if at all, indicates that all mankind is his offspring. You could argue it out of Luke 3 and the genealogy which takes you back to Adam and you can possibly argue it out of Acts 17 but they're the only two places and it is arguable on both cases. No, no, it was Israel which was God's chosen son. Of all the nations of the world, only Israel was the son of God. And when Jesus Christ came, he opened up the adoption into the family of God to all nations that is, to all nations who came and believed in him. For it is through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and his ascension to heaven when he pours out his spirit upon people that they are born again into the very family of God and are adopted as the children of God. Come with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. Ephesians 1, verse 5. When it speaks about the fact in verse 4 of God choosing us before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, it says, In love, God predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. We are adopted as the sons of God, but we're only adopted as the sons of God through Jesus. There's no other way you can come into being the sons of God but through Jesus. Or come to... Uh, Ephesians 2.18, Ephesians 2.18. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Or back to uh, Galatians chapter 3 verse 26. Galatians 3 verse 26. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For you're all baptized into Christ and have clothed yourselves with Christ. Or uh, Galatians 4 verse 6. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Or Romans chapter 8, verse 15. Romans chapter 8, verse 15. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him, that is by the spirit of sonship, we call God, we cry, Abba, Father. Or 1 John chapter 3 verse 1. 1 John chapter 3 verse 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are the children of God. And what we will be has yet to be made known. But we know that when he appears we will be like him for we shall see him as he is. Right now, we are the children of God. Right now, there are people here who have been born again by the Spirit of God and are adopted as the children of God and the members of the family of God who are already being transformed into the likeness of the family of God. You know what it's like when you look around, you see somebody, you say, I know that person, and then you realise you don't know that person, you know their brother or you know their sister, and they just look like them because they have that family resemblance that you can pick it out. There are some brothers and sisters here I can even pick in in this room and, they, and some of you just look like your fathers too and I know your fathers and it's like, oh yes, well, it's a chip off the old block, that one, isn't it? Some it's more like a splinter, but yes, I can see the family resemblance. You can't yet physically see the family resemblance of the family of God, but spiritually, 
it is already there. And when Christ appears, then it will physically be there appear as well because we will be transformed into his likeness. But we are now already his children. And that is why we already now call him Father. Because of the gospel, we call him Abba, Father. Because of the gospel, the Son of God has become our Lord. His work is central in prayer. For how can a sinner such as I come to God? Well, I've just said in Ephesians 2.18, through Jesus Christ. For Jesus is the mediator. The one mediator, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6. Those of you who do cross-stitch and tapestries and all the rest of it, 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 and 6, that would be a real good verse to put in a nice frame over your bedhead each night to remember. There is one mediator, there's one God, and there's one mediator between God and mankind, that is Jesus Christ, the man Jesus, who gave his life as a ransom for all. See, he is the great high priest who has offered up the one sacrifice for sins so that we could be forgiven. We've studied this in Campus Bible study this last session, haven't we? But let's just remind ourselves of Hebrews chapter 7. We could follow this all the way through Hebrews, Hebrews 2.17, Hebrews 4.14, but come to Hebrews 7, all turn it up with me, Hebrews 7. Come to Hebrews 7 and remind ourselves of it there. Such a high priest, it says in verse 26... Pick it up, verse 23. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our needs, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens, Unlike the other high priests, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all, when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son, who was made perfect forever. The point of what we're saying is this, we do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, set up by the Lord, not by men. So I don't have to go to the tabernacle. I don't have to go to the temple. I don't have to have a priest to go and intercede for me to go for God. I don't need a sacrifice for my sins because I have a priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. I have access to the temple, not a local one in Jerusalem or in Sydney or in any suburb, but one in heaven itself. And he is interceding for me and mediating for me as the high priest for eternity because he's not going to drop dead like the average priest does. He has died and risen again to live forever. And what's more, he's offered up a sacrifice that was so good, so complete, so sufficient, so satisfying to God that no other sacrifice could ever be offered again. And he is presenting that sacrifice, namely his own very self. He is offering up that sacrifice to pay for my sins, mine and yours. And everybody's, because it is of such nature and character that it covers the sins of the whole world. Because of Jesus, the Son of God, I can now boldly and freely approach the righteous judge, the forgiving Father. Because of the... (laughs) 
She's not very eye-centred. Lovely person. I tell you, I wouldn't have done that for Al. (laughs) Come across to chapter 10, verse 19. Chapter 10, verse 19 of Hebrews. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter, boldness, confidence, to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let's draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. See, the high priest could only go into the Holy of Holies one day of each year and then only after the most elaborate offering up of sacrifices and washings and purifications and dressing in all the right clothes and then he would enter into this one occasion. He would be taking the sins of all the people with him. He'd be representing the whole nation. Only he could go. He had to be of the right tribe and the right clan and the right family. He had to be the right man at the right moment. And he went in with this rope, so the Jewish tradition has around his ankle, so that if he dropped dead or had a heart attack or something like that, they could pull him back out because anybody else who went into the Holy of Holies would be struck down dead by God. He went in in fear and trepidation and intimidation. But when the Lord Jesus Christ died, that curtain was ripped from top to bottom. The whole world can walk into the very private chamber room of the Almighty God. And we walk in not in fear as slaves, not in fear as sinners under the wrath and judgment of God. We walk in as forgiven children. I'm sick recently. My wife's been sick recently. For various reasons we've been sick and we've been entertaining visitors in our bedroom. We don't normally entertain visitors in our bedroom. And it's quite interesting when you're sick in bed and people come to visit you and therefore they've got to visit you in your bedroom because you've got a broken foot and so they can't, you can't come out to them, they've got to come into you. And people come in with a certain unease, certain trepidation. You feel like you're invading the private space of somebody and I can assure you, you are. There's this kind of discomfort about kind of being in there and seeing me in my pyjamas, which is quite a sight, (laughs) reserved only for a very special few. But suddenly you're allowed in to see it because of this. But it's fascinating because as they're kind of tiptoeing around and feeling awkward and not knowing where to sit or where to stand or what to look at or how not to look at, in comes a member of the family and it's completely ignored. They just bounce in, jump on the bed, ah, oh, get off my foot, you silly idiot, and all that kind of thing because they've got a relationship that is completely different, a relationship of such acceptance that they can come in with a boldness and a confidence that is totally at contrast to the other kind of, how do you enter into the throne room of God? as a sinner under the righteous judgment of God, well then you come in fear and awe and terror and so you should. As a servant of the mighty king, you come in bowing, in desperate concern lest he give you. We come in as the children of God, in boldness and confidence, not because we're unaware of his might and our puniness, not because we're unaware of our sinfulness and his holiness, 
but because we know of the blessed Lord Jesus Christ who has gone in ahead of us and who has made intercession for us and has paid the penalty for our sins and the work of the Spirit that has come into our lives that we can now call God Dad. That confidence that we have is astonishing. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have the great high priest over the house of God, let's draw near to God with a sincere heart, full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. That is us. So we say amen to God because of his faithfulness through Jesus Christ. You'll find it in 2 Corinthians 1.20. That is, because of the gospel, the Son of God has poured his spirit into our hearts so that we call God Abba Father. I've given you the verses already, Romans 8.15, Galatians 4.16. Because we have the spirit of God, we come to God, Ephesians 2.18. For we both have access, Jew and Gentile, both have access to God the same way through Jesus Christ, by the same spirit that we have received, the spirit of sonship. And so the spirit aids us in our prayers. The spirit enables us to call God Father because the spirit is not separate and distinct from Jesus. It is the spirit of Jesus, the spirit of sonship that we have been given, the son spirit that has come upon us that we call God Abba Father. But the spirit aids us in another way. Come with me. You all need to turn to it. Romans 8, verse 20. Six, Romans eight twenty six twenty seven. It comes in the context of suffering. You will see back from verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not to be worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed. And it's all about the sufferings of living in this fallen world. And he says in verse 26, in the same way, The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. I don't know how much suffering you have endured already in this lifetime, but uh, you will endure it because man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upwards is what the scripture teaches and you will in due time suffer excruciating pain and agony over all kinds of things in life and it's just part of living. It's part of growing up and it's part of the existence of being in a fallen world. And sometimes when you're in the midst of suffering, you don't know what to pray. You can't work out what is the best thing, what is the best course of action for us now, which way should we go? You can't think what to do next. My father died last year. There was the brief time between when you hear the message that he's had an attack of some kind, a heart attack or something other, and he's taken to hospital, and you say, what, you know, will he live, will he recover? And you've got to work out, do you pray for him to recover when he's in his late 80s? Is this the moment when you're praying that he will continue? I mean, he wanted to die, not slowly, but quickly. He wanted to die just in his own house, in his own room, watching his television and his beloved sport late at night. And there he was. He had an attack late at night in television, his own chair, own house, right in front of watching the sport. That was exactly what is how he wanted to die, a Christian man who would, would be taken with God to heaven. Do I now pray that he 
linger on, that they resuscitate him, that they... Is that what we pray? Or do we say, no, let him go? It's a difficult thing. My mother died over a period of time of cancer and very hard to know what to pray. As you see someone suffering, someone that you love. It was a long time ago and some of the cures that we had now, we only just had had then and, of course, they were very vicious in those days and the radio treatment burnt her from one end of her body to the other. She just peeled, sunburnt kind of peeling for about three or four months. It's, it's a dreadful thing to see someone you love go through that kind of thing. You say, well, what, what do I pray now? I pray that she get better or I pray that she die. I mean, the obvious thing, as soon as you hear that your loved one has cancer, you immediately pray that they get better. You immediately pray it does. But after a while, it's quite obvious she's not going to get better. But can I really pray that she should die or that she just be relieved of the pain? What, what, what do you pray for people? In the context of suffering, what you pray for becomes incredibly difficult to know because you haven't got the wisdom to know what's the best anymore. You don't know what the right thing is anymore. It's too morally, ethically confusing. It's too personally confusing. You don't know what to pray and so you, you find that as you kneel or as you sit or as you bow your head or as you whatever it is that you do, as you pray, your words kind of get all confused and confounded and you start to um and err uh more, and, more and more. I prayed with someone earlier this evening who's, who's going through terrible suffering and as I tried to work out what to pray, I found myself stammering and stuttering through a long, confused prayer of ums and errs because I, I have some heart's desires in one direction, I have some heart's desires in another direction, but I can see that it's neither of those heart's desires are going to happen and I don't know what to pray for what I can see is going to happen to this poor person. And so I... Um, well... You don't know what to pray. But don't worry when you are like that because the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints. God knows what we are trying to pray but cannot find the words to articulate and by his spirit turns it into words that we cannot find isn't that marvellous news the very point where our words fail us so we cannot pray anymore God the spirit takes over and turns our, our groans our sighs, our agonisings into prayer now that is not of course an excuse to say well I never need to pray I just need to groan it's not that. That's not the context. The context is the context of the sufferings of this world when we don't know what to pray. Then God the Spirit does it. My wife was seeing a lady who used to come to Bible study with her and who had had a terrible stroke. And, and she and a friend were around there visiting her in hospital and she couldn't really speak and, and yet she could understand what was being said to her. And my wife was talked to her a little while about about the things of God again and reminded her of the things of God and the woman tried, desperately tried to speak to her and of course was totally frustrated because she couldn't mouth the words that were clearly in her head and Helen said the tears were pouring down her eyes as she was trying to say the things of God to her sisters who had come to visit her and God in his kindness reminded Helen of this verse at the time and she 
repeated it to her and told her not to worry for the spirit knows what you are saying and therefore God knows what you're saying. And she said a great peace overwhelmed her. She lay back knowing it didn't matter that she hadn't been able to get it to her sisters. God still knows. She may not be able to speak, she may never be able to speak but it doesn't matter. God knows what she is saying for the spirit is at work in us. It's a wonderful passage isn't it? It's wonderful to know God's loving care for us in our prayers, in our difficulties. So because of the gospel because of the gospel we are born again and adopted by God so that he is our father we have the son has become our Lord and we have the spirit of sonship within us that is the gospel reveals to us in words our relationship with God it reveals to us how we can and should pray it reveals to us what we should pray so then, how should we pray? Point number three. Six ways. Very quickly they are and you'll find them. One, as sons to a father. That's how we should pray. Not cringing with fear, but respectful, bold, confident and honouring. For you are to trust your father, rely upon him and depend upon him for all things. For the role and function of a father in the Bible is to offer protection and provision, discipline and instruction. And just as you are taught in the Bible to honour your father and your mother, so you are to honour your heavenly father. So you do it with respect. Do not rebuke an older man but treat him as your father. You do it with respect but you do it with that confidence and boldness that only a child has of a father. And so as sons, in everything and always for everything, you can ask your father. I was just at a shop one night, a fish and chip shop, and there were these two little kids, lovely, delightful little kids. You can always tell that people think they're lovely and delightful, that's because they don't have to take them home. Lovely, delightful little kids with their father there buying the fish and chips, and so we're standing around all waiting for the hamburgers and fish and chips to be cooked up, and... These two little kids kept on, you know, he said to them, well, we'll get some soft drink. Well, that was it. Off they went off to the fridge. Opened the fridge, pulled out this one, bring it back. We have this one, Dad, and this one, and this one. And he'd be saying, no, no, we'll put that back, we'll put that back. And there was this delightful, they could, they could ask him anything. Doesn't matter how stupid it was, they couldn't read the labels. They didn't know what they were pulling out of the fridge. Didn't make any difference. They were just pulling things out of the fridge. This one, this one, this one. And he was saying, no, not that one. Yes, this one. No, no, put that back. And there was the delight of the child with the father who could ask anything, absolutely anything. At one point he picked up the little girl and he lifted her up and plonked her down on the, on, the, on the counter and she squeals of delight as she had total trust that he could throw her in the air and that he could plant her down safely, that he would look after her completely. As a child to the father, so we pray. That's how we pray. He is the father, protects, provides, loves, cares for, instructs, disciplines, will say no to us and will say yes to us, will never deny us the good things we need, but will always give to us. We approach him as a father. Secondly, therefore, with faith, with this trust, with this implicit reliance and dependence upon him. It is the essential nature of prayer. Prayer is, as one of the ways of defining it, it is faith expressing itself. It's faith 
articulated. It's faith put into words. It's depending upon God. And thirdly, by the Spirit. Because it's the spirit of sonship which convinces us of the gospel truth. Because it is the spirit of sonship which convinces us of God's fatherliness. Because it is the spirit of sonship that persuades us that Jesus is Lord. So we pray in the spirit. For that is the only way to pray. When you're saying pray in the spirit, it doesn't mean there are other ways to pray. It's saying we've, we've got to pray in the spirit. That's another way of saying we've got to pray with faith. You can't pray any other way than with faith. You can't pray any other way than with the spirit or pray any other way than through the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in the spirit through the son who opened up the way for us as our only mediator, priest, temple and sacrifice which is why we must not turn to other mediators. It's not that prayer through Mary or prayer through the saints or prayer through human priests is an optional extra. They are actually implicitly a denial of the one true, only perfect mediator that we have, the Lord Jesus Christ. Ponder, friends, why do you need to pray through Mary? Is it because Jesus is disinterested in you? that you need to go to his mother to kind of bend his arm? Is it that Jesus is too high and lofty that you need to go through Mary to... Why do you need to go to another mediator when you have the Lord Jesus Christ and when you have his spirit within you? In fact, if you do go to somebody else, aren't you implying somehow that he is not able to reach you? or that he is not really interested in you? That you have to go to somebody else? Nowhere in the Bible are we encouraged to pray to the saints or pray to Mary, or go to priests as holy men who can draw close to God for you. That's never in the Bible anywhere that I know. It says in James, confess your sins to one another. Some wit in the time of the Reformation said, I've searched all over England and I can't find the Reverend Father one another anywhere. Confess your sins to one another. For we pray through the Son, by the Spirit, with faith, to the Father. The Father who is our Father. The Father from whom, Ephesians 3.15, every fatherhood on earth and heaven is named. The Father who is able to help. The Father who is willing to help. The Father whom we have the relationship as the adopted children of God. Before I go down to the Father who changes, etc., let me just put a couple of little side points in here which partly answer some questions that have been coming up through the week. If you did go for a pattern of words, if you were asked to write a new prayer book, and we must collect up the uh, prayers that we've been writing in this week because as the publisher of Matthias Media, I'm interested to see whether we haven't got with us now a collection of prayers that are worth publishing. So I hope all the uh, staff workers have collected prayers so that we can have a look over later and do a publication if that's possible. If you're asked to publish a prayer, write a prayer. Then although you don't have to follow any formula of words like saying God willing and things like that, the formula of words that rightly captures what I've just been saying is to start your prayers, Our Father. And then to go with, we thank you, because you should always make your petitions with thanksgiving. And to conclude your prayers through Jesus Christ, our Lord. For the way you pray is to God as Father, and you should always pray with thankfulness, and you can only pray through Jesus Christ. That's the pattern of words which captures 
the right understanding of prayer, which I am very thankful that my Sunday school teachers taught me, although I didn't understand that they were teaching me the truth so well. But that doesn't include the spirit, you say. And I'm saying, no, that is how the spirit teaches us to pray. For the spirit does not draw attention to himself. The spirit draws attention to the Lord Jesus and to the Father. We did a mid-year conference on the Holy Spirit a few years ago, and I'm not going to give you the whole five days in, in one sentence, but basically the bottom line runs like this, that to pray in the Spirit is to pray to God as your Father because Jesus Christ is your Lord and to be praying for holiness. For the three fundamental functions of the Holy Spirit are to point to God as your Father, to regenerate you so that you have God as your Father, to point to Jesus as the Lord of your life and to transform you in holiness of living. That's the fundamental work of the Holy Spirit. And so when you pray to the Father through Jesus, you are praying in the Spirit. That is, to correct a thing I got wrong the other night, in part, in the Bible, you most commonly and basically pray to the Father. Just occasionally, I've now found three occasions, two and a half, Someone prays to Jesus, Acts 7.59, 1 Corinthians 16.22, and in 2 Corinthians 12.8, he prayed to the Lord, is that Jesus or is that the Father? He usually calls Jesus the Lord, so it may be Jesus, but then again, he's Jewish, so he still could be calling God the Lord, so we don't know. So two and a half references of prayer to Jesus, and I said uh, the other night that 1 Corinthians 16 was praying to the Spirit, but I looked that up, or people looked it up for me and pointed out it's not. And so I'm still looking for anywhere in the Bible where you pray to the Spirit, and I'd be glad if anybody could tell me later on where it is that you pray to the Spirit. Um, I don't think it would be theologically wrong to do it, but that is not the nature of prayer. It is not the nature of the work of the Holy Spirit. He does not draw attention to himself. He keeps pointing to the Father and to the Son. All right, then if you pray to the Father, then you pray to him, back on point E1, you pray to him who can change all things. For all things are possible to you, Abba Father, says Jesus to his Father. You pray to the Father who relents, which is one of the battles we've had this week, isn't it? 1 Samuel 15, 29, Numbers 23, 19 says that he is not relenting in the sense of being a changeable liar, fickle in his character, but he is one, Exodus 32, 14, and Joel, uh, Jod, uh, Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, he is one who on reasonable request will actually change and will relent of bringing evil upon us on reasonable request of his people, who gives as we ask, so that we do not have because we do not ask, in James 4.2, or we do have because we have asked, ask and will be given to you in Matthew 7, and therefore who changes circumstances. He doesn't just change us, the prayer, but he changes the world, but he also changes us in our praying and who is glorified whenever we ask in Jesus' name. Jesus says in John 14, verse 13, that now we bring glory to God the Father by praying and asking things in the name of Jesus, who brings glory. Yet the sixth point of prayer needs to be put in there for accuracy and completeness. How do we pray with difficulty? If you ask how should we pray, it will be with difficulty because we are still in a world of sin and we still have sinful nature. The person who says prayer is always only ever easy 
is a person who hasn't yet wrestled with prayer. It is difficult. Don't be surprised. So how do we pray? Well, if you're dominated by sin, if you cherish sin in your heart, if you're not committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and know his forgiveness and are saved by him, then you don't pray. And in fact, I wish to suggest to you that you can't pray because God will not be listening to you for you have no access to him. God in his generosity and mighty and mercy and the rest may actually listen to you, but you can't pray because you can only pray through Jesus and you are rejecting him. So the critical question then is, are we the sons of the living God? Are we the daughters of the living God? Are we the children of the living God? For it's only as the children of God, by spiritual rebirth through the Son, can we express faith in prayer rightly to God. For only then can we call God our Father. For if you have not been born again, God is not your Father. So you can't approach him as your Father. So have you been born again? If you're in doubt about it, don't go home this week without fixing it. Ask someone. Don't worry about being embarrassed in front of humans. You worry about being embarrassed before God on the last day. Ask someone. Any doubt about it? Well then, how do we pray? By expressing our childlike dependence, our relationship of forgiveness and rebirth of being the Jesus people by expressing it in words. That's how, by expressing our sonship in words, by expressing our faith in God in words, our trust, our dependence, our reliance upon God, the Father of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. That's how we pray. It is so simple. If you understand the gospel, for prayer is just faith in words. It is just responding in the gospel. How do we pray? Through Jesus Christ our Lord, to God our Father, by the Spirit that he has sent into us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you for every good gift that you have given to us for life, for friends, for wealth, for health, for this week, for the privilege of being able to study at university, for friends and for family. Oh, Father, your blessings upon us are just so massive. But we thank you most of all for the Lord Jesus Christ that you in your holy righteous anger should be so merciful and generous to us as to pay the penalty for us in the death of your one and only son. If the list of things we can thank you for is endless the magnitude of the death of Jesus is also endless. And Lord, we can only, in sorrow for our sinfulness, thank you for your kindness. We thank you by this means. 
you who are able to hear us and willing to hear us. You who are too holy and righteous to have anything to do with us have given us access to your very presence into your very courtroom and throne room and into it as your family, your children. That we can call you Father. It boggles the mind, Father, that we can be here right now with you. Lord, you know our sinfulness and you know how our sinfulness distorts our trust in you. How we let the evil one bring accusations back to us, accusations which are not true because Jesus has paid for us. How the evil one tries to get us to manipulate you or to doubt your goodness or your ability how the evil one tries to get us into rules and regulations or into laziness and indifference. You know the battles that we have, Father, and we're sorry for our failings and ask you yet again to forgive us. You yet again to forgive us. We pray, Father, for those amongst us who do not know you yet as Father and we beg you to be merciful to them that we who do not know you may come to know you, that you would pour your spirit into us abundantly, that we may come to know Jesus as our Lord and you as our Father and have this privilege of being able to talk to you so personally, so privately about all the cares and anxieties of life. And Father, those of us who do know you, you know we are so silly we're so stupid that we miss out on the great privileges that you give us for wanton foolishness. Thank you for bearing with us. Thank you for regenerating us. Please continue in your patience towards us to correct us and to change us. Open our eyes to see the privilege of being allowed to pray. Pray. Convince us of your greatness and the greatness of your work in Christ that we will feel the moral necessity to pray. Help us to listen to your generosity in commanding us to pray. Remind us again and again, please, Father, of your promises that we might have fresh hope in asking you of all things. Give to us the sense of gratitude that will lead us again and again to come back and say thank you to you and to give you the praise and the glory for everything that is in our lives. Oh, Father, you have made it possible for us to pray. Please, by your Spirit, give to us that desire for prayer that in all circumstances we may pray, giving thanks to you in all conditions of life, praying without ceasing, just as you have invited us to do. And we ask it through the one who makes it possible for us to come to you, the one who died for us and rose again and who pleads for us, even Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to the talks on philipjensen.com. Please check our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material on philipjensen.com.